Here's what you need to know as we begin our series today. Around 2000 BC, God called a man named Abram to follow him. He promised Abram that he would make a great nation of his descendants and that he would use this nation to bless the whole world. About 600 years later, this people had indeed grown into a large nation, but they were suffering as slaves under the mighty Egyptian empire. In his great power and mercy, God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt's hands and led them to the land he had promised to Abram long ago. But because of their stubborn and rebellious hearts, they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years before finally entering this promised land. When they first moved into the land, they were led by Joshua. And after his death, they were ruled by a long series of judges, the last of which was a man named Samuel. And it's toward the end of his rule that our story picks up today. Don't you love timelines? Uh, it helps me get a kind of a bigger picture, um, and it does a good thing to me. It helps me realize how small I am in light of how big God is. Because one of the constant dangers that we face is thinking more of ourselves than we truly are. It's not about thinking nothing about ourselves. Um, God's design for us is not that we think that we're nothing or that we're no one. He wants us to have a right view of ourselves, that we were made in his image, that we have some amazing gifts and abilities. And in this room, there are lots of gifts and abilities that God has given to us. The problem is when you and I begin to think more of ourselves than we really are, when we begin to overreach or we begin to think in our own minds to outgrow God's plan or purpose in our lives. That doesn't only happen to us individually it happens to us collectively. And so this series that we're going to be looking at, it's going to be peering into a time in Israel's history. We could call it Israel's troubled history because they're living in the land and they're now beginning to kind of, you know, stretch around and, and, and take a look at, at this land that God has given to them. And then as generation comes and generation goes, and now there is very little memory of what it was like in Egypt. There's very little memory that... God has split the sea and we have walked right through it. That's like a distant memory. Now all I know is this land, this land that's my land. This, this land that I work with my hands. This land that I defend with my blood. And, and God becomes more of a distant memory. Someone maybe that I go and worship occasionally, but most of my life is, is spent working hard for myself and working hard to protect myself. And what this series is going to do is help us see that that part of Israel's history is something that God's people repeat over and over and over again. I don't know how new you are to Sunnybrook, but if you're relatively new, we have spent a long time, almost two years, going through the Gospel of Matthew. And you probably, when you hear that, yeah, that's right, the gospel of Matthew, like the gospel of Mark, or the gospel of Luke, or the gospel of John. But what we are talking about is the gospel of the kings and prophets. That might strike your ear kind of strange. We've already done two series there a while ago, but we did one called the gospel of the patriarchs and the gospel of the law and the land. 
And now we're looking at that time in Israel's history, but the filter that we're going to use to understand that time period is still the gospel. The word gospel, as you probably know, means good news. And the good news is not that God loves you, but he does. And the good news is that God is there for you, but he is. The good news is that God has, from the very beginning, a plan to live in community with his people. And no matter what they do, no matter how they live, no matter how hard they fight against him, God is going to not just win generically. Have you heard that? Well, the end of the book says that God is going to win. Yay! That's kind of like a generic God wins. No, God wins. And this is how God wins. By coming and redeeming for himself a people. That God wins by coming and establishing a kingdom that is in some sense like the garden, but fuller and richer and better, where God reigns supreme over and in the lives of his people, it looks a lot like Eden. And it looks a lot like heaven. It's what God has always intended, and what we see in this section of Israel's history, and how many of you kind of grew up in Sunday school? So if I ask you who built the ark, you know who built the ark. Noah did. And who was the, who was the one that, that, that walked through the sea as God split it? Who, who was that? That was Moses. And, and who killed the giant? That would be who? David. And then who called um, the bears to come kill the 40 children? Okay, we'll see how it got quieter there. That's fun. Um, we'll, deal with, we'll deal with some stories maybe that you don't know. But do you remember Sunday school? And Sunday school kind of went like this. These are these amazing people in the Bible. And aren't they amazing? And and isn't God good? And now you go try to be them. Remember that? Now you go try to be them. When you find yourself in a lion's den, you just pray and God will watch you. When you find yourself dealing with giants, you just... And and you kind of know, I mean, I'm not going to really end up in a lion's den, so I'll do my best to be courageous. Thank you. I doubt if I'll ever meet like a nine-foot, six-inch Philistine... And if I do, I guess I'm going to hope I have a slingshot. But I get what you're saying. So I'll try to tackle my giants. I'll try to deal with my struggles and my difficulties. And they they, they seem more like, and this is the way that we, I don't think it's anybody's fault. It's kind of this human tendency to be searching for and trying to find the moral of the story or the reason behind the story. And and when when we do that, we do the Bible a disservice. Because the Bible doesn't lift us for us, lift, lift up for us all these amazing examples of faith and says, try to be like that. Come on, you can do it. You really can. You're that special. Remember when your mom told you that? You're that special. What the Bible actually says, contrary to what your mom told you, <laughs> maybe some of your moms told you this because they loved you, you're a mess. Like you are, and you're selfish, and you're broken. But not only do I love you, but bigger than that, God loves you. And not only does God know you're broken, and it's not only God going to love you anyway, he is going to redeem and restore you. And that's the story that we're going to be looking at through these stories of the kings and the prophets. The kings are the ones who are set in a way as God's temporary authority to to rule over the people. But the problem with every human is that whenever we're put in power, we begin to manipulate and exploit. And so God had to send prophets to come and to remind kings who God is. 
And that's how we jump into our story. We're going to begin in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Why don't you turn there? 1 Samuel chapter 8. I might be using a couple of texts before we get there, but why don't you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8? Because what you see in that is it's that period right at the end of what we know as the judges. Samuel is the last judge, and Samuel has some children that are not good like him. They actually are kind of like a bad king. They exploit, they take advantage. They're set in, in, in positions of authority, and they use that. Can you imagine this, that people would use their authority to take advantage of other people? Can you imagine that? Yeah, it's not a new problem. And when the people looked at Samuel and they saw his sons, they knew that something was broken. Now, if something's broken, there must have been an original design for it. So while you wait in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I want to remind you of an incredible truth, which is that God had a design different than the brokenness that we live in right now. Do you know that? When you look around at the world, can you tell it's messed up? Can you tell it's broken? Yeah. And we can get lulled into this idea or this perception that this is the way that it is and maybe the way it's supposed to be even though I wish it were different it's just the way it is it's just life life is like that but God's design when God made it in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 this is what it says about God's design and God's creation it actually says and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was what it was very good God looked at his creation he didn't go wow I could have done a better job there that was a mess You know what I made a mistake on? No, God made all of his creation, and his creation is living in unison with him, and he says, behold, it is very good. And by the way, this is what I love about our God. He is very aware. He is all-knowing, and so he knows the path that we are going to take. Now, I know that creates some questions. Well, then why would he? Yeah, that's an answer beyond my pay grade. I just know that he does. And God makes Adam and Eve, and they decide to do something kind of like Israel's doing in 1 Samuel 8, Adam and Eve decide, you know, we've been in this garden for a while and we kind of like it, and um, I think we're going to not only treat it like home, but we're going to act like it's home. We're going to kind of do what we want. We're going to put our feet up on the coffee table. We're not going to take our shoes off when we walk in the house. By the way, a very great Canadian tradition. We don't have many, so we got to applaud the ones that we have. We're going to take our shoes off when we walk inside the home. We're going to actually respect this place that we have. No, what do they say? I know God said that we cannot eat of this particular tree, but it's right there. It's, it looks delicious. The snake was talking to me and said that this would go well for us. And they decide to usurp God as their ruler, as their king, and to put themselves in his place. You know exactly what that's like. I know better than God. I know how I should live. I know what I should do. I know what I want. I don't need somebody else to tell me what I want or tell me what I can't do. I know better than, we very seldom fill in the blank, but I know better than God. And Adam and Eve, they they mess it up. They're the ones that introduce brokenness into the equation, and as their descendants, we live in the wake of their unbelievably foolish decision rebellious decision. I need to call it what it is. Sinful decision. But God in his plan knows exactly that 
Um, their mess was coming, and God has a plan. How all this works together, again, I don't know, but I do know that he holds it together and that he works it together. And God sees in Adam and Eve the, the growth of this couple into groups of nations, and he selects Abraham. That's why that timeline is helpful. And from Abraham, he makes this great nation. And he even told Abraham, from you, kings are going to come. But God also knew that when those kings come, even the best of them are going to be like Adam and Eve. Even the best of them are going to decide, I like what I like, and I want what I want, and I'm going to take what I want, and I'm going to do my best to enjoy my life the way that I want to live it. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm the one that's going to, and he knew. God knew that they were going to do this. And so before we look at 1 Samuel 8, I want you to look on the screens at Deuteronomy 17. Yes, Deuteronomy, the wonderful book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, God points out, hey, this is what's going to happen. Kind of like your mom and dad before you leave for college. Well, let me tell you what's about to happen. Let me tell you some of the temptations that you're going to have. Let me tell you about some of the struggles that you are going to go through. And you did this. Yes, mom. Yes, mom. You know what it's like? You know what it's like when somebody tells you, hey, like I've been there before and these are some of the struggles that you're going to go through. Yeah, I know. Are you, are you done yet? Because I really would rather just go. I got this. It's my life. You've been there? I've been there. I can't tell you the number of people I said, thanks for the advice, but I got this. God, speaking into Israel's history, says, listen, there is going to be a time when you're going to want a king. And not only do I love you and I've made you the way that you should be, I'm going to give you, in spite of the fact that you've already rejected me once, I'm going to give you the picture of what a real king should look like. By the way, these are some great lessons on leadership right here. Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, like Eve, like, or like the Garden of Eden, Okay, or like Eve to Adam, I guess. I'm, I'm going to give this to you. I mean, don't assume that, we're, that we automatically have it. That's going to come back later. This land that your Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you. So we see God has a plan. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Next slide. Only he must not acquire. Now notice the kind of the warnings that come against this. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. What has God got against horses? God must really hate horses. No, it's what horses represent. God made horses. Horses represent something, and particularly for a king, horses represent military power and military strength. And God says, listen, what you're going to do as a nation, what, you're going, what your king is going to do is he is going to forget that I'm the one who provided the land, that I'm the one that's going to protect your borders, and he is going to be so nervous and concerned that he is going to start assuming my job in your lives, and he is going to start acquiring horse after horse after horse after horse. And not only that, he's going to go back to Egypt, because I heard they have great horses there. And I'm going to go back to... To the place where God delivered me from. And I'm going to go back there. 
to the place that enslaved me, and I'm going to go back there to find strength so that I can be strong. You're going to go back there? The, the, the place that God, like, dealt with the place that God judged you're going to go back there so that you might find strength and God says and when your kings want to do that don't do that because why since the Lord your God has said to you you shall never return that way again and he said not only do not acquire horses look at this and he shall not acquire many wives for himself what does God have against wives and horses well you know what he's got against horses but you know what he has against wives well not wives what God has, again, it's a similar problem. When we read the Bible and we read that Solomon had like so many wives, we go, wow, that guy was a wild guy, kind of a modern-day Hugh Hefner. No, he's a modern-day politician. Wives didn't just represent this kind of unbridled sexual desire. The many wives that Solomon had were him going, hey, I've got a problem with so-and-so, but if I take his daughter as my wife, then we'll be at peace. Are we good? Okay, we're good. Okay, yeah, she can come live with me. And instead of saying, hey, God, I've got this problem on the, the kind of the, that northeastern Syrian border, like I really don't need you. I got his wife in my harem. So I'll let you know if I need you, but man, I'm really kind of learning this political game. And Solomon acquires all of these wives who bring in with them all of their traditions, all of their family history. And, and by the way, listen, like I know, Solomon, that you've got this great God that's working for you. But I'll tell you, my daddy in his, in his country, he's got this really cool God that's working for him. And I want that God to be beside your God. And Solomon goes, why not? Like, what's wrong with that? What's, what, what's wrong with covering your bases? That, that wives thing is not God is against polygamy. No, sure, God did design us for it to be man and woman. That is how God designed us. But God's extra warning is not just that we would only marry one person, but that we would learn to rely on him in those areas of our lives where we should rely on him the most. And king set a precedent, and he says, this king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself, wow, this gets a little closer to home, nor shall he acquire, because I don't have horses or wives. I have a wife, no horses, okay? Um, a wife, no horses. Look at this. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. What does that represent? I'm going to provide wealth. I'm going to provide for myself. And I'm going to keep providing and providing and providing. And, you know, I'm going to work how hard I can, but I've actually learned, especially as king, that I can begin to take from others. And we'll see how that works. Next slide. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, look at this. This is one thing the king should do. Can you imagine if we required this of our politicians? Yeah, it sounds unconstitutional. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. By what? By reading and by obeying God's word. He will learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and of these statutes and doing them. And his heart may not be lifted up, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom and his children in Israel. God has, in his design, this is what a king should do. A king, a real king, 
would trust in me. A real king would rely on me. A real king would not take advantage. A real king would never stand up and go, look at me. Look how powerful I am. Look how a real king would realize who God is, who God's people are. That's what a real king would do. And that is God's design. But Israel, settling into the land, will have nothing of it. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when we enter into the story, what we actually see is the people of Israel absolutely scared. Samuel is going to die and his children are going to replace him. And they say, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And Samuel is absolutely distraught. He recognizes that not only are they rejecting him, but they are rejecting the one that he represents. They are rejecting God. They, like Adam and Eve, are shaking their tiny little fist at God and saying, I know what you said, but I honestly know better. And the step two is not only God revealing his design, but God speaking a warning. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through 18 This, by the way, is what happens when you and I decide to trust someone other than God in the roles and responsibilities that God alone should provide. This is what we see. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. So this is God's warning. He will take your sons and appoint them. Notice how God is the giver and kings are the what? Takers. God is a giver. And, and, and kings are takers. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen to run before his chariots. Those are all the horses that he's been acquiring. And he will appoint for himself, notice where the direction is, commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be his perfumers and his cookers and his cooks and his bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and he will give them to his servants. He will take the tenth. Can you hear kind of the tithe idea? God says, I ask you, God says, this is, I ask you to give a tenth to me. After I have given you everything, I ask you to give a tenth. And this is how God describes kings. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, and he will give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and he will put them to what? To the best of the nation. To to the betterment of humanity, what will he do? His work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, which, by the way, you should give to God, but no, now the king is going to take those. I mean, you and I are just dreaming that kings would take just a tenth, but that's another sermon. Take a tenth of your flocks and shall be his slaves. And in that day, listen to this. This is kind of an interesting text. In verse 18, So God says, here's what's going to happen. He gives a very clear warning, but but kind of like someone who not only knows better, but is determined to do their own thing. You know those people? Who not only know what is better, but they are determined, I'm going to do what I want to do in spite of all of the evidence, in spite of all of the facts. I am going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm ready. Are you ready to take the consequences of this decision? I am ready. You been that person? I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to take it. Whatever it is, I'm ready to take it. 
Now, I, I know that, that what you've probably heard in some ways is that, that God is always going to be there for you, that God will always be there for you. No matter what mistake you make, God is always going to be there for you. But some of us have wrongly then assumed that what that actually means is that God will save us from those circumstances and will never really have to experience them. And I know a lot of people who are really mad at God for the mistakes that they have made and they live in the wake of those. I hear it all the time. Man, I'm really disappointed in what God has totally let me down. And then they begin to tell a story of their rebellion against God and their foolish decisions and they're just wondering why God didn't rescue them. Now hear me. Here's a complicated truth, not an easy truth, a complicated truth. God is always there for us, more than we ever deserve or could ever imagine. And yet, in his sovereign, loving, caring, righteous mercy and plan, God allows us, God works on us through it. Not a lot of churches want to tell you that. They got that sea splitting so you can walk right through it. They, they, they've got it done in such a way that, hey, and the, and the truth is, you, no matter what mistake you, you make, you just say this, and, and God's right there for you. And, um, you know, more like a genie. Look at verse 18. Listen to this. Here's what God says in verse 18. And in that day when you realize, wow, I am now a slave. Like I left Egypt, but I'm a slave again. What happened? Look at this. And on that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you chosen for yourself. I told you so. But the Lord your God will not answer you in that day. What do you think of that? But the Lord your God will not answer you in that day. Now listen, don't read the wrong elements into that. Don't say, wow, so therefore God doesn't love me, or God doesn't care for me, or God has abandoned me. God actually doesn't sit over you and say, I told you so, and now you're going to have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's really not what God does. But God in his sovereign plan does say, now this, by the way, is a text written to a group of people. And you always got to be careful um, reading these texts and kind of applying them directly to your life. I read this promise that God has given to the nation of Israel, and then I apply it like it was written to Jim, the Canadian, Okay? There is application, but be very careful just stepping through that like it's just like da-da-da-da-da. No, it's a lot more intricate. But God says to the nation of Israel, I've got a plan that supersedes your immediate frustration when you realize you've made a mistake. What we're going to see in the unfolding of this is that there are going to be, even in the best of the kings, failures. And God is going to rescue them. But hear this, on his timetable, not theirs. That's what verse 18 says. Like, I've got a plan, and I am going to be there for you, and I am going to rescue you, but I've got a plan that is greater than just your incessant need. Have you met that person? They just so desperately want God to do something, and they said they've been praying for almost three days for it. And then they give you some speech about how God is never early. You, know, you do know you're talking about a being that doesn't know time. Like we have timelines and God just exists. I, I'm uncomfortable describing anything as God being early or late. God is just God doing what he does and it is more of my responsibility to recognize that this is the timing of God and to trust in that and to be grateful for that instead of a spoiled child going, I don't understand why God's not giving me what I want. 
By the way, that kind of idea in your prayer life, like why isn't God there and why isn't God doing what I told him to do, who's the boss in that relationship? And God in his gratefulness, people say that God is a gentleman. Here's what they mean by that. That God in his wisdom not only knows what is best, but allows us the freedom. I talk a lot about the sovereignty of God, but I also believe completely in our freedom. At God's permission. And I'm amazed that the text continues in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no! Like, can you hear that? Like a child at Walmart? No, I want it, I want it now. And then, ugh, who raised this kid, right? No, but there shall be, listen to just the tone of this, but there shall be a king over us that we also might be like the other nations and that our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. What they're looking for is someone to provide and protect because, you know, who can trust God for such important things? And before you think that sounds crazy, let me ask you a question. When you begin to worry about what is being provided to you or who is going to protect you, have you ever felt scared? Have you ever looked into this great big world and thought, who is going to provide for me and who is going to protect me? Have you ever had that feeling? Before we laugh at the Israelites... We have to take a sobering fact, an inventory that is a sobering fact that we are so much like them. Who on earth would ever trust in governments and politicians for economic systems and the provision of our goods and the protection of our borders? Who would ever do that? Me? I call it being a responsible citizen of this great country, thank you very much. Yeah, that's what they called it. It's not that crazy what they're asking for, is it? And yet from here, it looks like it's crazy. No, we want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 21, and when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, like he needed to. Verse 22, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make him a king. And then Samuel said to the men of Israel, this is kind of an interesting phrase, go every man to his city. That's kind of a statement that you'll see repeatedly in the Bible. It's, it's kind of like, okay, everybody go home. I don't need a protest. I don't need you to, to argue against this. I don't want you to revolt against this. I'm going to do this. Now, everybody go home. Let there be peace. And God provides for this rebellious people against what is temporarily best for them. God gives them kings. And the best of them will exploit them. And the best of them will manipulate them. The best of them will fail to provide. The best of them will fail to protect. And so what does God do? Does he stand back and go, good luck with that? There's a young man that has kind of come in and out of my life. We first knew each other in Joplin, Missouri when I was teaching there. And then for some reason we both ended up here. And he would, he would come into church regularly. This might be kind of like maybe even your story. He would come into church regularly because he knew that there was something missing in his life. And he was really searching for it. Searching for meaning and purpose and friendship and all of those things. And so he would come here hoping to find it. And we would try to connect him to, to, to different individuals and different ministries. And he would begin to kind of connect and to feel something. And, and then he would get distracted. It's kind of like, okay, there's a bird. And he'd get excited. Except it wasn't a bird. It was a pretty bird. It was a girl. And he 
would find this girl. All of a sudden, he would disappear, and he did the best place, or he did the best thing. He found her in a respectable place. It was a great bar. It really was. And he found this ungodly, unchristian girl, and he decided to fall in love with her. And all of a sudden, he disappeared. Hey, I've missed you. Where have you been? Oh, I've been busy. Like, he didn't say, yeah, I've been sleeping with my girlfriend. He says, yeah, I've been busy. Well, we miss you. Yeah, I know you do. And then it just was kind of disappear, disappear. And then like years later, he'd come back. I'd see him in church. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, God totally let me down. Oh, well, tell me what really happened. She left me. Really, like the girl you met in the bar <laughs> that was probably having lots of other boyfriends in the midst of that, she left you. I can't believe that. What are the chances of that, right? And so he would, I mean, you need to really, yeah, I know. I really need to connect. I mean, I know God let me down, but I'm going to give him another chance. Um, he would walk through this, and it would be this regular habit of him coming here, trying to connect, finding something that he thought would satisfy, and then pursuing it, and it would just disappoint. Just like Israel, just like kings, just like you, just like me, whether that's a job, or a marriage, or a diploma, or a friendship? Have you ever worked really hard and acquired something really, really valuable and then it let you down? Yeah. Then what do you do? Get mad? Drink? What do you do? This is the beauty of, this is the good news of the kings and the prophets. Is that God doesn't stand over you and go, well, good luck with that. You're going to have to pull yourself up by your own boot. I told you you shouldn't have done this. God, the cosmic gentleman, is more than a gentleman. He reaches down and he rescues us. Because the Bible teaches that not only did God know that we would mess up, but God knew that he would be the only one that could really rescue us. Israel's always looking for a king. Can we have a king? Can we have a Messiah? Even their view of a Messiah is not God incarnate. It's just another king that's not going to take advantage of us. And they're still looking for another king that's not going to take advantage of us. Another human being that's not going to take advantage of us. And I'm telling you right now, they don't exist. So God comes down, puts on human flesh, and satisfies the gospel of the kings and the prophets actually teaches that God isn't just going to look for someone who is after his heart, but God is going to give his very own heart so that you and I can really find peace. Now listen, this is where it gets complicated. Many of you, if not most of you, if not all of you, are going to be able to do some rather good jobs of providing for your families. And you're going to be seduced into believing that you're the one providing for your families. Don't do that. Many of you are going to be very capable men and women, and you're going to actually be um, seduced in your own mind to believe that somehow you're the one that's protecting your family. It is a right to carry state, you know. Please do not be seduced into believing you're the one protecting your family. Only by the grace of God can anyone provide. Only by the grace of God can anyone protect. Do you know that? And out of this crazy town called Bethlehem will come a king, a ruler. And he will save his people. What God does is not just have a design, not just give a warning, and not even just give permission. But God steps in and he provides us the rescue. 
See, what we learn from this story is that, wow, we really could mess up just like Israel. Let's be honest. We have all messed up just like Israel. But the same God who planned to send a king, his own self, Jesus, is king. Is there to rescue you? And he will come on a day and written on a sign is written on the side of his thigh is what? King of kings and Lord of lords. And he does not come to exploit you. He comes to be what he has always been, the one true and righteous king. The question is this. Do you desire to experience the good news of being a part of his kingdom? Do you desire to give up the temporary small K kings that you've experienced in your life and experience the joy of finally allowing him? Let's pray. God, I ask you to do that work in our hearts and in our lives. I beg you, Father, to to reveal to us that need, that brokenness, and to make that work. God, I thank you for you and for your plan and for Sometimes I want to thank you for my freedom, and then I realize, but it's my freedom and my foolishness that has brought me to this broken place. And then I remember again that you have freed me, and I thank you. And so God, in the midst of this broken world, in the midst of my broken life, I want to thank you for Jesus. And right now for us as a church, help us, help us to enjoy you as our king. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray, amen. From time to time, we like to end our service by taking just a few minutes uh, to talk about what it looks like to live out our Christian life in the middle of things that are currently taking place in our nation or in our world. Over the last eight or nine days, the topics of race and of Uh, Hatred and of violence and injustice have have been at the forefront of a lot of Americans' minds recently. With with the events that took place in um, Charlottesville last week, the the rallies and and the protests against those and then the subsequent violence and then more rallies and protests and and shootings of police officers and all of these things that have taken place over the last week. One of the things you probably noticed is that a lot of people have been very quick, and not just people, but organizations and and corporations quick to to get on social media and and quickly post their opinion or to give their official stance or statement on whatever issues are taking place at this time. This led to a a really big discussion amongst some of the members of our staff this last week over what our response as a church ought to be to this. What are we supposed to do in times like these? And on the one hand, We'd like to think that that things as evil as racism and the the hatred of another human being based on their color or their ethnicity, that that it would go without saying that all of that stands completely opposed to and runs completely counter to what Christianity is. Do we really need to stand up and, and say that publicly? Is there anybody who even wonders about that? And we also want to be cautious about being a church that chases every hot-button issue that hits the news cycle because we know that in a broken world like ours that we could, we could do or we could stand up here every Sunday addressing different things that are taking place in this world. On the other hand, it's difficult to see the things that some of us saw on our TV screens this week or on our iPhone screens. It's difficult to hear some of the things that we heard without speaking up. 
And we also know that there are a number of you who, who saw and heard things and you felt strongly about those, but you didn't really know how to respond to it. And you didn't even know how to articulate the things that you were feeling. You're not alone. That's been us too. And so without being, as I said, that church that chases the hot button issues, we, we do feel compelled this week to stand before you and try and draw our vision back to the gospel and to kind of make clear to you three ways that we believe the gospel speaks to issues like this. The first is this. The gospel tells us clearly that Jesus came not just to reconcile us to God, but to also reconcile us to one another. Ephesians 2 says that when Jesus died, that he broke down in his body, yes, the barrier of sin that stood between me and God, but he also broke down the barrier that stands between races and between people groups. And he did that by creating a whole new kind of people group, that is the church, a church that is made up of every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. And the reason he did that is not because he thinks unity is a nice and sweet thing, and wouldn't it all be better if we just got along? No, he did that because the church at its fullness, when it is fully, um, when it's filled with people of every ethnicity and tribe and tongue, that it more fully displays the beauty of God and his glory. Or as Ephesians 3 says, it, it displays the manifold wisdom of God to the world around it. So we know this, that if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are, regardless of your race, your background, your social class, or your status, you are my brother. You are my sister, and it is my responsibility. I am called to love you well. The gospel also tells us this, that in his great love for all people, God sent his son to die for all people. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I urge that prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people because God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And lastly, the gospel tells us this, um, that Jesus did not come and die for me because of any inherent goodness or worth in myself. Instead, Romans 5, 9 says this, that God's love for us is demonstrated in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. More than that, Paul says, while we were his enemies, Jesus came and died for us to bring us back to himself. And in doing that, he set an example for us of how we ought to respond to our enemies with self-giving love, with self-sacrificing love, just like Jesus. So how do we respond as Christians to weeks like this? We would say that the best response is not through clever tweets or through giving your official stance on political issues that are taking place or social or justice issues. And it's not even through posting really helpful articles, even though all of those things can be good. But the best response is to faithfully live out the gospel that has changed us. To strive to be a kind of people that loves one another well, that sets a model of unity both within these walls and outside of these walls with other brothers and sisters. To be a kind of people who knows and listens to brothers and sisters who are different than us. It also means that we pray for the salvation of all people asking that God would help them to come to a knowledge of the truth and that we look for opportunities to show the gospel to people who are within our circles and also people who are outside of our usual circles. And last, it means that if at any time we find hatred and violence spewed in our direction, that we do not, um, we do not respond in kind. 
that instead we act towards them like Jesus with self-giving love. Listen, the world knows nothing of those things. It doesn't know how to do that stuff, but we're not the world. We're the church. And God has called us to display his manifold wisdom by our great love for one another and our love for the world around us. Let me pray for us to do that and it will be done. Dear Father, we confess to you what I think many of us felt all week long and that is a bit of an ignorance as to what is best to do. And there's some of us who felt like we knew exactly what to do and it may not have been the right thing. So we confess our need to hear from you in these things. We confess our need for your wisdom. I pray that you would give that to us. Pray for our nation that you would give wisdom to our leaders. You would direct their um, decision-making. But even more than that, I pray that you would use your church to be a model of love, that people would see the way we love one another and that we would know, that they would know that we are Jesus' disciples. I pray, Lord, that you would make a path for the gospel to all people. She would give us opportunities to share the gospel and that through the gospel you would change not externals, not just systems and, and not just the way people think, but that you would change people from the inside out, making a new people, making your church glorious and beautiful. We ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, It's our practice here, one of our practices, that after the service, there will always be men and women down front who would love to talk to you about any of the things you heard in the sermon today or about connecting here. And so if you're interested in that, you are welcome as everyone else makes their way that direction to come this direction. Also, if you're a student and you're interested in connecting at Sunnybrook or into our college ministry, there will be people at a booth in the back corner of this lobby wearing shirts like this that would love to talk to you about connecting here at Sunnybrook. We love you guys and you are dismissed.